0: This week on the Back Table podcast. Yeah, I think this is profound, and um, you know, you kind of alluded to this earlier. There's quite a bit of controversy, Nicki Minaj, Ballgate, on vaccines and impact on testicular function. And can I just maybe ask you to provide a summary statement as it pertains to genital function, sexual function, and fertility with respect to the vaccine? Sure. I think the I think it's COVID vaccines, both the mRNA
1: as well as the DNA vaccines, appear to not impact on gonadal function with testosterone production does not have an impact on erectile function and definitely doesn't have an impact on sperm parameters and male fertility.
0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the Back Table podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on itunes spotify and at backtable.com this is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today Ranjit Ramasamy from the University of Miami urology department Ranjit is the director of the men's health medical clinic and surgical clinic he's been a thought leader and pioneer in his field and um super excited to have you on, Rajit. How are things going today? Thanks, and Thanks to all the listeners for tuning in.
1: Uh, certainly happy to be here and happy to be discussing uh, some topics that are pertinent to, to men's health and the pandemic today.
0: Perfect, perfect. So, you know, I was kind of thinking about this podcast and reflecting for myself personally, you know, what the pandemic has me- meant as a male, you know, in terms of psychosocial well-being, family time, exercise, and it's all I feel intimately related and really looking forward to to kind of hearing your thoughts and and some of the research that you've been able to to produce in these disease states. And my plan, Ranjith, was to kind of talk about the effects of the pandemic, the effects of actually contracting covid, and the effects of of the vaccine itself um as we kind of structure the talk today. And within those, I was hoping to delve a little bit into gonadal function, sexual function, and fertility. How does that sound for a plan? Sounds great. All right, so maybe just you know to kind of get the audience up to speed for other providers, when you're intaking a patient and assessing gonadal function, what are, what are the kind of key things that you want to hone in on from a history, physical perspective, laboratory evaluation, and so forth? Yeah, perfect. So when we look at gonadal
1: function in men, uh, the most common condition that we deal with is something called testosterone deficiency, or male hypogonadism and in order to uh, diagnose a man with either of those we need two things one the man needs to be complaining of symptoms and some of these symptoms can be non-specific like lack of energy low libido erectile dysfunction uh, inability to lose the weight that they were normally used to lose a few years ago and it needs to be combined with a blood test uh, with a testosterone level drawn in the morning and preferably uh, two levels, and they both uh, should be less than 300 nanograms per deciliter. And as long as these criteria fit, usually we can diagnose men with uh, testosterone deficiency.
0: Okay, okay, so um, those are kind of the main questions we want to ask. Any standardized questionnaires, um, you know, this is something that, you know, AUA symptom scores or something, of course, we're familiar with that you use when you're intaking patients assessing for gonadal function?
1: Absolutely. So there are two questionnaires that come to my mind. Uh, One is called the ADAM questionnaire, uh, the androgen deficiency in the aging male, uh, and then the AMS, which is the aging male symptom scale. Both of them, uh, unfortunately, are very good tools to screen men for testosterone deficiency, meaning they're not very specific. But if you want to pick up a lot of men uh, who complain of this condition, then using these questionnaires is, is a pretty good idea. Uh, However, they're not routinely used in practice. They're not really recommended by the uh, most recent AUA or the EAU guidelines that they need to be used routinely. And so as long as men complain of these symptoms and they have a documented low testosterone on their blood tests, then uh, you're pretty confident in making the diagnosis uh, without the use of any standardized questionnaires.
0: Got it. And in your, I know we'll kind of get to this uh, when we talk about the effects of COVID, but have you... Observed, or are you aware of any data that suggests that there's been any increase, decrease, or no change on the diagnosis of symptomatic hypogonadism over the course of the pandemic?
1: Absolutely. So, I think in the beginning, when the pandemic started and a lot of men were homebound and on lockdown, uh, I think we attributed to uh, decreasing testosterone levels because of uh, the sedentary, less active lifestyle that these men were leading. And later on, and I'm sure we're going to discuss this with with fertility as well, uh, we actually found that the cells that make testosterone inside the testis are called the Leydig cells. And one of the most common receptors that the COVID virus binds to is called the ACE2 receptor. Uh, And in fact, the ACE2 receptor density is the most inside the testis. So there's a lot of ACE2 receptors in the lung, which is why COVID binds there very easily. A lot of ACE2 receptors in the kidney, COVID binds, they are easily causing, you know, renal failure and, and, and pulmonary failure, which I think everybody knows. But the organ in uh, the human male that has the most density of ACE2 receptors is actually the testis. And the cell that has the most ACE2 receptors in the testis is the lytic cell that makes testosterone. So we actually went on to do studies to now show Uh, that the covid virus can actually be present inside the testes uh, long after their initial infection and there are now lots of studies showing that testosterone deficiency following covid infection can be a, a direct impact of the actual infection rather than some of the side effects that happen from sedentary lifestyle weight gain improper eating lack of sleep things that are normally attributed to testosterone deficiency can happen also directly from the actual infection, not just the side effect of the lockdown.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, really kind of goes back to what you were saying. When you're diagnosing a hypogonadal man, it's going to be two critical components. And I think we see kind of a direct reason for why testosterone levels may be lower. I imagine it would be very hard to conduct a study where you have pre-infection testosterone levels and then post-infection testosterone levels. And then secondly, you know, you kind of mentioned the sedentary lifestyle, lack of being able to exercise and so forth. And, and I also have to imagine that, you know, symptomatic hypogonadism has characteristics that, that overlie with anxiety about the pandemic, feelings of loss, um, you know, loved ones being isolated, not interacting. Of course, there's going to be a proportion of, of men, I would imagine that took, the pandemic as an opportunity to re-engage in self-help uh self-health practices exercise and and whatnot but so i I think what i'm hearing here is that there is organic decreases in testosterone from the um, actual covid virus impact on on the latex cells and then you know a part of the whole spectrum if you will is going to be a sedentary lifestyle plus everything else kind of associated with the pandemic is that fair No, absolutely. I think uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, like we used to call in
1: college the freshman 20, you know, you gain 20 pounds when you start freshman year. I think COVID-19 is like the 19 pounds that people gain during the pandemic. And we're seeing a lot of patients now that basically say, Doc, I haven't gone out of the house. I, you know, I haven't exercised. I haven't been able to lose weight, not just from the infection. And fortunately, a lot of people ask me the question, Doc, what are the, uh, you know, ways in which you can naturally increase testosterone? And the easiest things are to sleep better, exercise, lose weight, and to lose the stress. You know what the pandemic did? It gave all of that. You know, it uh, it led people to a sedentary lifestyle, made people couch potatoes, watch more TV, eat more fast food, gain more weight, and sleep worse because now you didn't have to wake up to go to work in the morning. And so I think uh, the pandemic, yes, the actual infection, COVID infection, led to decrease in testosterone. But I think just the pandemic alone uh, made people either take two paths. And I, the, the, the one path is men men and women realized that they needed to exercise, use this as a very good opportunity to lose weight, uh, lead a more active lifestyle and, you know, get better health and, and healthier over the course of uh, this pandemic. Unfortunately, a large proportion of patients and people, I should say, uh, went in the opposite direction, where they said they will restart and gain the healthy lifestyle after the pandemic is done and ended up gaining weight and not exercising and leading a sedentary lifestyle. So I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg in, in terms of testosterone deficiency and hypogonadism. Now that the pandemic is sort of slowly, hopefully ebbing away and vaccination rates are increasing. I think we're gonna see more and more men uh, with testosterone deficiency in this next six months to one year.
0: Yeah, I, I guess recovery and long-term effects and recovery is gonna be something absolutely outstanding. And you know, I think this kind of dovetails quite nicely into the second aspect of men's health that I'd like to touch base on, which is going to be, um, not just sexual function, but sexual practice patterns. And without being an expert on this, I I can kind of foresee a couple of different scenarios. One for people that are in relationships, they're at home more with their significant other and perhaps sexually more active without much to do outside of the house. And then, of course, conversely, for people that may not be living with uh, their significant others or or partners, you know, the isolation ultimately leads to you know a, a decrease in engaging in sexual activity. Any opinions or data on on this, Fringeet? Actually, yes. So, so you know, in the when when the
1: pandemic started, we started seeing quite a few uh, men complain of erectile dysfunction. Some who had the COVID infection, uh, some without. And we sort of attributed all of that to non-organic or just psychogenic erectile dysfunction. Uh, We said that you're locked down, you're seeing the same partner the whole day. There's lots of fights. We actually thought now that men and women or partners are now living in the same household, uh, they have a lot more time to engage in sexual activity. It actually took the opposite direction. Uh, Sexual frequency actually decreased during the lockdown. And there were actually nice studies that showed that. And and we thought this was all psychogenic. But then we, we, as the pandemic went on, we started seeing a lot more men who had their erectile dysfunction persist after their COVID infection, six months, seven months, when sort of the lockdown was off, at least here in, uh, in in Miami, Florida, where the lockdown restrictions were lifted pretty early on. We saw that the erectile function was not recovering despite the lockdown being lifted. And then we went and studied whether there was some sort of an organic cause, because the COVID virus basically affects the cells that supply blood vessels called the endothelial cells. It affects the endothelial cells in the lung, again, in the kidney, causing a lung failure and a renal failure. And one of the organs, again, in the human male that gets the most blood is the penis. And the penis also has a lot of endothelial cells and it requires blood to function properly. And so we went back and actually did electron microscopy studies of patients that underwent a penile implant, looking at uh, penile biopsies at the time of penile prosthesis, close to seven to nine months after their COVID infection. And we actually found that the virus was still present in the penile tissue seven to nine months after the infection. And it was also interesting that we found it inside these endothelial cells, again, these cells carry the same receptors that are necessary for the COVID virus to enter inside the cells. And was what was fascinating was the endothelial function was decreased in these men uh, who had erectile dysfunction develop after their COVID infection. So uh, really fascinating. How is the virus able to stay inside the penis and the testis uh, long after the infection? How is it able to evade the immune system when these guys clearly test PCR negative uh, prior to getting their operations, which are elective? And what it's doing there, does it cause continued damage? Uh, does it, is it a permanent insult when the infection happens and these guys can never recover? Uh, I think, unfortunately, so many of these questions still remain unanswered, uh, but hopefully some of our research in the future will answer some of these questions.
0: Well, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, I think to have the foresight to obtain the tissue, do the appropriate tests, and even to, you know, understand the baseline is really forward thinking. And um, congratulations to you and your team, which have certainly been on the forefront of much of this. And, you know, as we talk about sexual function, you know, of course, I think most urologists would be familiar with the sexual health inventory and men's score, but other intake instruments that you use, not just for actual erectile function, but sexual practice patterns. I think the IIEF score is pretty
1: comprehensive. There's obviously several subdivisions, uh, one of which we truly focus on is obviously the erectile function scale, but in terms of uh, uh, orgasmic function, ejaculatory function, and libido, I think uh, the IIEF uh, complete questionnaire will probably encompass its, uh, unlike the ADAM questionnaire that we talked about for testosterone deficiency, uh, the IIEF questionnaire is very well validated. Uh, Not only is it good for a a screening tool, but also for uh, symptom improvement after any therapy that you would do uh, for men with erectile dysfunction.
0: Got it. Got it. And then the final piece that I'd kind of like to, you know, focus on in each of our States being, you know, the, again, the pandemic actually acquiring COVID and then receiving the vaccine is going to be impact on fertility. So you, you touch base on, you know, late cell dysfunction, the ability of COVID to actually enter and I guess, bypass the blood test, barrier. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your, your kind of thoughts on the, let's just start with the pandemic in and of itself and its impact on fertility. Absolutely.
1: So, one of the, again, we talked a little bit about testis and testosterone, and fertility is obviously tied completely with it. Uh, so, COVID 19 virus can be present in the testis uh, up to three to six months after the original infection. The, when the initial pandemic, it wasn't a pandemic, epidemic of uh, the SARS virus that happened in China in 2006, uh, they had done autopsy studies in China uh, showing that the SARS CoV 1 uh, which is the first, first time this, this virus was discovered in 2006, can be present inside the testis, causes inflammation in the testis called orchitis. Uh, it's the same exact thing that Nikki Minaj referred to in her tweet about swollen balls. Basically, men get testicular pain and, and develop, can develop infertility after their COVID infection. And so we actually noticed uh, that men had declining sperm counts in the three to six months initially after their COVID infection. Uh, This was a very difficult study to do because at that time there was no vaccine and we had to mail and we couldn't see men who had tested COVID positive because they were in lockdown and we were not allowed to see them. And so we had to mail in uh, sperm analysis kits to their houses and they had to mail it to us back. And so we actually saw that the decline was pretty significant. About 50% of the general population had sperm counts that were in the severely abnormal category. But very good news, very reassuring when we went back and looked at their sperm counts at six months post COVID infection, we found that their sperm counts had actually recovered. So yes, there is a temporary decline, uh, but thankfully this uh, this effect does not seem to be permanent, at least in the small pilot study that we did early on in the pandemic.
0: And Ranjit, you know, again, one could think of many different scenarios that a couple may be considering if they're thinking about having children. Hey, we're at home, let's have a kid and see, see where that goes. Or of course, conversely, you know, not a good time to have a kid with so many unknowns and having to interface with the healthcare, physical infrastructure, et cetera, not to put you on the spot, but do you know of any data regarding birth rates kind of a year over year kind of pre and post pandemic or intra pandemic? No, uh, I mean, no, it's a very good question. So birth rates in developed countries,
1: um, over the last 10 years have been steadily declining. Uh, We don't need, we may need to do another podcast to discuss why that's happening. Uh, Sperm counts are declining worldwide, both in, in Asian, Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. And so we don't know all of the reasons, but a recent study just came out showing that the birth rates during the pandemic have actually gone down. And like you mentioned, it was a, uh, it was a PNAS study uh, that came out of Europe, basically showing that birth rates had declined during the pandemic. I mean. This 100 factors why birth rates could have gone down. I, uh, one of them could be the actual infection leading to declining sperm counts. But certainly, I think uh, people's practice patterns in terms of, uh, you know, are we going to have uh, more intercourse? Are we going to try for a kid? There was so much uncertainty when the pandemic happened that I think a lot of people just pushed their uh, family making plans. Or some other people went in the opposite direction and said that, hey, I know we were planning for having a child in, in two to three years. Now that this uncertainty happened, you know, we're at home, we could actually take care of the child. You know, people went on to 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 start planning early. So I think population went in divergent directions in terms of family planning during the pandemic. Uh, but I can tell you that, that at least from one study done in Western countries alone, uh, the birth rates actually declined during the pandemic.
0: And I would imagine that some couples would have been reluctant to seek fertility counseling, whether that's on the male end or the female end during the pandemic, just, again, because of lockdown and pushing off non-elective, you know, interfacing with, with healthcare infrastructure.
1: Absolutely. And I'm sure you did a podcast on this. If not, you should. I think the onset of telemedicine that the uh, pandemic contributed to, I think, was a huge boon to the medical specialty as a whole. Uh, but certainly, especially in fertility, I think it, uh, it actually improved access to care Uh, for uh, patients that were not interested in seeing providers face-to-face, but still wanted to start at least their initial workup and evaluation.
0: All right. So I think, you know, one take-home for myself here is that gonadal function, sexual function, and as they kind of pertain to quality of life are clearly issues that have come to the forefront during the pandemic. And I would, you know, maybe... State that I think it's incumbent on primary care f- providers and also urologists who largely serve as men 's health providers to really dig into these questions to see where their patients are at and uh, I think you've provided some some nice resources both in terms of the appropriate questions to ask and also standardized questionnaires to really you know get some objective data so thanks for doing that Ranjit so let's let's talk a little bit about actually men that contract COVID. So there's there's a male to female predilection, right? Men are more commonly affected. Men are more severely affected. Could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, some of the, the hypotheses and theories behind that? Absolutely. So I think it it, it, it comes down to testosterone again. But uh, when you
1: look at the same number of infections between males and females, uh, men are more likely uh, to be going to the ICU and men are more likely to die Uh, from COVID compared to women. And if you look at just the prevalence of males versus females uh, either dying from the uh, COVID infection in a 20 to 30-year-old population. So let's say you take 100 people between 20 to 30 who died from COVID. Actually, 85 of them will be male and 15% will be female. Uh, When you look at the population between, let's say, 70 to 80 years old, And if you take 100 people who got COVID and died from COVID, only 65 will be male and 35 will be female. And so this basically started the hypothesis, maybe this has to do something with androgens and testosterone. Uh, Men who have higher testosterone levels will have uh, a higher chance of dying from COVID because the TEMPRS2, which is one of the receptors that is uh, responsible for uh, COVID activation inside the cells, is actually driven by testosterone and androgens. And it's fascinating because uh, there was also uh, studies now showing that in men who take androgen deprivation therapy for prostate cancer, uh, seem to die less uh, from COVID than men who were ugonadal and who had normal testosterone and were diagnosed with prostate cancer. So certainly very interesting. I don't think we clearly know the answer. If it's a direct association between testosterone levels and COVID-19, uh, infection and outcomes, but certainly I think way more research needs to be done on what happens at the androgen receptor level, why are more men dying from it, and uh, and why do men with higher testosterone levels seem to die from it. But men taking testosterone therapy or having higher testosterone levels are not at increased risk for COVID-19 uh, morbidities, and the same holds true uh, for men who have normal T-levels. Because low testosterone levels in men uh, seem to have, who have more comorbidities like diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, metabolic syndrome, obesity, seem to all have like a much increased risk of uh, COVID-19 ICU admissions and death from COVID. So uh, certainly very uh, intriguing question. I don't think we clearly know the answer to this. Uh, Much more research needs to be done to elucidate the fine relationship between uh, testosterone and androgen receptors and and COVID nineteen outcomes.
0: Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that the uh, early observations of androgen deprivation therapy in prostate cancer patients and some of the conf- conflicting reports were intriguing, uh, to say the least. And you know, my in, in my opinion, I think the data is inconclusive. Um, certainly, I don't think there's going to be a line out the door to start getting Lupron injections as a as a way of kind of mitigating COVID effects. Fantastic. So. For impact on gonadal function for men with with COVID, so you talked a a little bit about, um, you know, impact on on the latig cells. And do you, and and again, not to put you on the spot, I know the data is premature. Would you encourage providers, again, you know, PCPs, endocrinologists, urologists, to almost screen for hypogonadism, either using standardized questionnaires or AM? Testosterone levels in in patients that have a history of known COVID exposure. So I don't think
1: I don't think we should go looking for the problem. But I think when men complain about erectile dysfunction, uh, lack of energy, low libido, fatigue, inability to lose weight, inability to exercise, we shouldn't, as doctors, I don't think we should dismiss their complaints and say, "Don't worry, this is because of the lockdown; it'll go away once the pandemic ends," and shoo them away. So I think when men do complain of those symptoms, we should 100% take it to the next level and check a testosterone level, you know, give out the questionnaire for the IIEF with erectile dysfunction and screen for it and treat it appropriately and not attribute this to psychogenic causes from the lockdown and the pandemic because I think there are organic causes which we talked about today that can impact gonadal function. So I don't think I would go so far as to just start screening for these in every routine office visit, and every routine men's health visit, However, when men do complain about these symptoms, I don't think doctors should be dismissive of them like we were. And I'll be honest with you. I think when the pandemic started, I think we were, as urologists, as specialists in men's health, were dismissive of these symptoms. We said this was psychogenic. This is going to go away, come back in three months. Then we saw just this recurring theme and pattern of men who kept coming back and saying, Doc, this is not going away. And that's when we started investigating all of these questions. We started doing penile dopplers. We started evaluating what the blood flow to the penis was started doing even sperm count evaluation and testicular uh, testosterone evaluations when we realized maybe we're actually missing something organic here. I don't think this is all just psychogenic uh, lockdown
0: effects. Yeah, I think I think that's sound advice and uh, you know kind of a tempered conclusion and you know not to be overly skeptical. I also. Worry a little bit about the indiscriminate treatment of men with hypogonadism that we see already so rampant among um, people who who perhaps we could just say that their motives may be a little little off. So, um, you know, a word of caution would also be to to see. Correct. I mean, uh, I mean, testosterone therapy has side effects, right? It has,
1: it is a steroid. According to the FDA, they could have uh, blood clots in the uh, in the lung in the legs, in the, in the brain, uh, in the heart. And so it's not without uh, side effects. It's a steroid. It has the ability of dependence and abuse uh, potential in certain cases. And so if when given to the right patient, I think it's, it's, it's appropriate. Uh, when given and prescribed indiscriminately, I think that's when we sort of get the waters. get. Yeah. Water. And
0: certainly, you know, younger patients that may even potentially be more profoundly Im- impacted. I think intake regarding, um, family planning and so forth is going to be absolutely critical beyond the scope of this, but it's not just going to be testosterone, uh, supplementation. Correct. What about sexual transmission of COVID? something that I think has, it's something my patients have asked about. It's, it's been in the lay press a little bit. You've done some research on this. What are your thoughts? So I think
1: the, the, I'm very happy to report that I think the answer is no. COVID cannot be sexually transmitted in asymptomatic recovered men. The one study out of China early on that basically showed that the virus can be present in the semen was actually done in hospitalized patients with acute infection of COVID, where they collected semen samples and they found that the virus was present. I think that study is true, but I'm also hoping that the hospitalized acute infected COVID patients are not engaging in intercourse uh, to transmit the virus sexually. So I think in asymptomatic recovered men with COVID infection, COVID cannot be sexually transmitted.
0: All right. Well, that's that's certainly a, a bit of good news, I would say, and um, you know, nice to hear that you're able to take a a fairly confident position on that. So as we think about effects on COVID in terms of gonadal function, I think it's safe to say that you know there is real organic depression of testicular function, the intermediate long term sustained effects of of COVID infection are unknown at this point. Is that safe? Absolutely. I think the long-term effects are definitely remain
1: to be determined, but I think we should just be careful. Uh, We don't know the long-term effects. My ideal scenario would be to establish, and this is something that, uh, that you could think about as well, as a COVID survivorship clinic. You know how we have prostate cancer survivorship clinics. I think Uh, we in urology, in men's health, need to think about establishing COVID survivorship clinics. If it's affecting fertility, if it's affecting testosterone deficiency, if it's affecting erectile function. Now we're talking about the entire spectrum of adulthood. And I think in that sense, establishing some formalized clinic where men with COVID can get these, you know, concerns addressed and evaluated, I think would be a very good idea in any institution.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, not just to mention the, uh, the effects that you mentioned, but if you think of like, for instance, a patient on androgen deprivation therapy with the osteoporosis risk factors, um, you know, metabolic syndrome, all of that, it, it's, it's, it's a great thought. And I, you know, I just kind of have this unpleasant thought that in about 30% of men that are on intermittent or short-term ADT, they have a hard time recovering their testosterone. And, uh, certainly, um, certainly we would, you know, it's going to be incumbent on us to make sure that that's not going to be a similar thing with COVID. Correct. So gonadal function, you know, organic depression, long-term effects outstanding sexual function, AD. I think, uh, you, you've covered that there's real endothelial dysfunction, which, which is a part of this. And, um, you know, I would maybe encourage providers and patients to bring this up as, as well, because, uh, is there, is there any data on effectiveness or relative ineffectiveness of kind of our garden variety PDE5 inhibitors and so forth? Or any reason to think that they would behave differently? No, I think we should just treat um, ED from COVID as just a vasculogenic
1: ED, meaning uh, they have uh, problems with blood supply to the penis. And so if they have mild erectile dysfunction, just like how we would treat men with mild symptoms with PDE5 inhibitors with such as Cialis and Viagra, uh, I think it's completely reasonable to to go down that path, uh, and if it doesn't recover, or if the erectile dysfunction is severe, uh, do not be afraid to discuss other treatments like uh, intracaminosal injections and penile prosthesis, like in the guys that we did penile implants post COVID infection uh, that we discovered the virus. So I think the, the when you treat in treating erectile dysfunction, I think it's important to note the severity of ED and not again. Uh, to discount it saying this is all going to get better with time.
0: And then finally, it would appear that there is a transient worsening of semen parameters that generally recover. That's correct, yes. Okay. And um would the would the kind of standard guidance of a year of unprotected sex be the the threshold to to seek counseling, or does that change at all in men that, that have contracted COVID? I think in men who have contracted
1: COVID, who are probably actively seeking fertility in the next year or two, uh, getting a sperm count is completely reasonable. The one thing that has happened, and we're just observing this in, in clinic, is the number of men, single men, who are not married or married or girlfriend or fiancé, uh, who, have, who have no intentions of having a kid until two to three years from now, coming in for just fertility checks has skyrocketed in the last year, whether it's their own introspection, whether it's the pandemic thinking about how life is so fickle and fragile, I don't know. I don't know what the psychological factors are, Uh, but we've never seen, because most often male fertility valuation is driven by the female partner. Women drive the men to the doctor's office and ask them to do the workout. Men hate being in doctor's offices, especially getting their sperm counts checked and quote-unquote their manhood evaluated. But with the pandemic, I feel that the a number of men just seeking fertility evaluation, Doc, I just want to make sure everything is okay on my end. We're not trying right now. We're going to have a kid in the future, but I just want to make sure. And I, I, I asked the question, did your wife send you here? They're like, no, I just want to get myself checked. And I think that has, I've never almost seen that pre-pandemic and that's an observation that we're seeing a lot now post i want to use the word post pandemic i don't know if we're there yet but but certainly uh, something that's uh, that's changed in the in the last year or two
0: and i think that dovetails quite nicely you know I, I, as we move into talking about the vaccine there's been so much information misinformation that's out there and um so maybe we'll just kind of start systematically again vaccine impact on gonadal function, what, what's the data that exists Ranjit? So,
1: uh, the vaccine, um, the reason there were so many concerns about the vaccine, the number of searches on, uh, COVID vaccine and fertility, uh, went up in, in, when the vaccines were, uh, obtained EUA by the FDA in December, uh, was because of two things, uh, one, as part of the emergency use authorization, uh, the vaccines did not undergo reproductive toxicity studies. The companies just didn't have enough time to do the um, even the animal studies that require uh, at least eight to ten weeks to uh, get a one cycle of reproduction done. And so, and the number two is that the actual COVID virus by that time we had discovered uh, that it can be present in the testis, can affect uh, spermatogenic function and sperm production. And so uh, people were legitimately concerned with the vaccines were introduced uh, that, that it can affect fertility, it can affect testosterone production uh, because people just associated uh, the vaccine with the virus. Uh, but thankfully, we can, are uh, very happy to report uh, that we did uh, the first prospective study on uh, the impact of COVID vaccine on sperm parameters. And we found uh, that there was really no change in the sperm counts before and after receiving at least the two mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. And we were able to publish these results in JAMA and hopefully uh, turned some of the needle in terms of vaccine hesitancy, at least in men and in couples who were truly concerned that this could affect uh, fertility. In terms of uh, testosterone and erectile function, we're just very happy to report we are actually um, haven't published the data yet, uh, but Really, no new symptoms of uh, testosterone deficiency or erectile function uh, worsened after uh, men received the COVID vaccine. So uh, really, as bad as COVID is uh, in terms of gonadal function, erectile function and fertility, uh, we're very happy to report that the vaccine, thankfully, doesn't have any of those adverse effects.
0: And have there actually been studies in pre and post vaccinated patients that have a AM testosterone checked? There have not been AM
1: testosterone levels, uh, but at least in terms of just symptom reporting before and after, uh, we haven't seen any new uh, symptoms of testosterone deficiency. But if you just look at the biology of how the vaccines work, uh, these um, mRNAs basically replicate and, and make the protein and not the whole virus. And so uh, we've gotten lots of public questions about whether the vaccine would enter the testis. it can't because it doesn't have the entire machinery of the virus. Um, Both the DNA vaccine uh, from Johnson & Johnson as well as the mRNA vaccines with Pfizer and Moderna, uh, because it cannot replicate the whole virus, uh, we don't think it should have any adverse effects on uh, testicular function uh, or erectile function uh, for that matter.
0: Yeah, I think this is profound, and um, you know, you kind of alluded to this earlier. There's quite a bit of controversy, Nicki Minaj, Ballgate, on vaccines and impact on testicular function. And can I just maybe ask you to provide a summary statement as it pertains to gonadal function, sexual function, and fertility with respect to the vaccine? Sure. I think the I think it's uh, COVID vaccines, both the mRNA as well
1: as the DNA vaccines, appear to not impact on. Uh, Gonadal function with testosterone production does not have an impact on erectile function and definitely doesn't have an impact on sperm parameters and male fertility.
0: Yeah, for all of our listeners, I think this is going to be obviously a key take-home message. And I've certainly learned a a wealth about the COVID, the pandemic, and the vaccine as it pertains to men's health. And any kind of final take-home thoughts for our, our listenership as we wind down? I think it's important to understand that uh, COVID is bad and uh,
1: COVID vaccine will prevent getting COVID and COVID vaccine doesn't seem to have any ill effects. So I think the uh, the message is very loud and clear. Try to avoid getting COVID. And if you get vaccinated, uh, then you can avoid getting COVID. And vaccines at least appear to be safe as far as uh, men's health and male reproductive function.
0: Fantastic. So there there we have it from somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. And, um, you know, again, thank you for your time, Ranjit. I really, really enjoyed it.